millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 25th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Public Expenditure gave a statement, as you know, to the Dáil on Wednesday of last week in order to address the many questions he faced about undeclared political donations to him to offset election campaign expenses. In addressing the House on Wednesday evening, I aim to be fully transparent. This was, I believe, the case at the time, and the statement I made was an honest reflection of the information I had. Pascal Donoghue hoped his statement last Wednesday would have drawn a line under the controversy. And then on Wednesday night, after my Doyle statement, I received a call from Mr Stone telling me that a member of his team did recall support being provided in 2020 through the campaign team. This prompted his call to me. So it was back to the drawing board and the same questions that were being asked about the 2016 election also needed to be asked about the 2020 campaign. Since Thursday, I have been working to ensure that the information regarding the 2020 general election campaign is completely accurate. And so the Minister was back once again in front of uh, the doll yesterday. Pascal Dunhu accepts he has received donations that should have been but were not declared and that he broke the law because he did not declare as obligated under ethics legislation. And I again apologise for the difficulties this has caused and for the distraction that it may have caused and does cause to the important work of government. Pascal Donoghue explaining himself to the doll yesterday. When you are explaining, they say you are losing. That's why politicians don't like explaining. But this is the third occasion the minister has tried to explain himself. So that's not good. Fiction or fantasy? A cock and bull story? Explaining now because he was caught out? Not an excuse to say he didn't know the rules when he's in charge of the rules? Made a hames of it and broke the law. The opposition were angry. Angrier perhaps yesterday than they were last Wednesday. So that's not good. But the government will move to draw a line under this now and it won't be giving any more time to the issue in the doll. So that's not good. 
for the opposition because they may have thought they had the higher moral ground on this unless they decide to act themselves and use their own time and perhaps draw a motion of no confidence in the Minister. Our political correspondent Sean Defoe is on the line. A very good morning to you Sean and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the show this morning. It was a, a heated debate yesterday. Is that the end of it or will there be more to this story? Well, the, the one to watch will be leaders' questions today at 12 and whether or not Merlin McDonald or some of the other leaders decide to kick this into another day because really, despite a lot of heat in the debate yesterday, no one landed a solid punch on Pascal Donoghue beyond the statement from Michael Stone. Uh, there was nothing that came out in those dull statements that, you know, is a resigning issue or is something that tripped him up or wasn't what his story was before. So whether or not they keep it going, and as you mentioned, there is that option, of course, of putting down a motion of confidence. I think that's something that probably will be weighed and debated. But at this stage, uh, it, it, look, it's fairly clear that it would fail. That's good who is well liked within the government. There isn't much unease on the government backbenches uh, uh, about this because he put in quite a confident performance yesterday. So those are the two options remaining. And now it's really up to the opposition to decide, right, have we taken as much heat out of it as we can? We didn't glean anything new yesterday. Uh, is it worth dragging this into another day? Or should we, as uh, the likes of Ivana Bacic, for example, did yesterday, leave this question, be focusing on some of the more important things to people like uh, the CAMS scandal and that report that was revealed on Monday, the general uh, state of housing and health and also the immigration crisis that the country is facing. So that's now very much the ball in the opposition's court to see, do they keep on with this? And, you know, as an issue, that what, what a lot of them will be weighing is, do, does the public have a real interest in this? Is this is what is this what people are talking about in their homes and in the pub and at work and all that sort of stuff? And I don't think it is. Mm. Yeah, I think that may be the question the opposition should be asking itself because it is pretty serious that a government minister concedes to having broken the law, but he has conceded that he's put his hands up and says guilty as charged, and I'm very very sorry for that. Uh, but despite that serious situation of him breaching legislation that he oversees. Uh, the opposition does have to ask itself if they want, the, if the public wants politicians talking about this and nothing else, if it's not going to result in any action, uh, if uh, the minister ha- has admitted to wrongdoing and the government is happy with that, when there are these other issues, whether it's immigration or CAMS or housing or the health service for that matter. Exactly, yeah. And that's what we're going to have to decide. And look, the actions of Pascal Zona, who now he's admitted his. Uh, he is, uh, is going to submit for 2020 uh, new returns. He's going to pay back €234, Euro, which was an excess corporate donation in relation to the use of vans uh, in 2020. And then he's going to have to wait for SIPO. But we could be waiting a very, very long time. SIPO is not a body that makes decisions very quickly. And it could be it could be well into next year before we get any sort of a ruling from SIPO. And even then, it doesn't have a huge amount of teeth. So it will be up to them, as Haskinson, who pointed out when it was, you know, allegations that he had broke the law were uh, were put to him in the door yesterday and he said, look, ultimately that is for SIPO to decide whether or not the law has been broken. He is going to refund this bit of the money, which is probably what SIPO would have ruled anyway, uh, and that he genuinely didn't know. And I suppose what it comes down to from both the public and an opposition's point of view, do you believe, Pascal Donahue, that he genuinely did not know about these donations uh, and did not know that someone was paying for his workers for it to happen across two different elections to the mm. value of totally you know, less than three grand uh, when it comes together. So I think that's something that they'll be asking. A lot of opposition politicians as well, and Pascal Donahue sort of hinted at this yesterday, 
putting up posters during elections is incredibly ad hoc. They rope in anybody they can. They rope in friends and family and whoever and mates that to come and help put up these posters. And it's all done in a big rush on the first day that they're legally allowed up. I would be massively surprised uh, if Pascal Donahue was the only one who did not stick. You know, the minister who, mm. let, let's remember takes huge pride in being squeaky clean or had taken huge pride in being squeaky and knowing the rules and being, you know, sort of perfect Pascal in the doll in the past. If he has gotten it wrong and he hasn't gotten everything right, then definitely are others in the doll. And I think a few of them will be uh, looking to their own glasses before they want to cast any further stone. It coincides, though, with a dip in the opinion polls for Fine Gael and uh, there is no doubt that there's been a lot of smoke that doesn't necessarily mean that there's been a fire that's up to the public to decide. But on foot of Damien English's resignation, it really is a bad start to the year for Fine Gael, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly won't be the bounce that Leo Varadkar had hoped he would get when he took over as Taoiseach again and rolling to that. Instead, he's had to replace junior minister. Has had a scandal involving one of his uh, best performing and most well-liked ministers that has certainly, even if it doesn't have any consequences for, you know, for his job or for anything else, it certainly has damaged his reputation both in the party and sort of nationally among the public. And if that's all it does, I think Sinn Féin in particular would take that as a win because it's a minister they haven't been able to, to, to land a, a blow on really uh, over the last number years through various different issues. So definitely not a great start to the year for Fine Gael, as well as dealing with all the other things, because mm. I think more so than Pascal Donoghue or Damien English, when it comes to election, if it was an election tomorrow, or even if it's the state that Fine Gael people are talking about, that it's going to be sort of September, October 2024, people aren't going to vote on that. They're going to vote on, well, what did you, know, what did you do for me locally when it comes to housing? My son, my mm. cousin, myself cannot get a house. Uh, you know, my elderly relative can't, uh, was in hospital and was sitting on a trolley for four days. I think those are the issues that ultimately it's going to come down to. And it's also been a bad month and a bad start to the year on all of those fronts. And indeed, of course, as you mentioned there, the neglect of children and adults with mental health difficulties in this country. That, as you say, was raised by Ivana Bakic yesterday during leaders' questions. Let's hear what Leo Radker, or a little bit of what Leo Radker had to say about CAMS. Uh, like the Mental Health Commission, I want to thank the young people and their families who spoke to them and shared their experiences of the CAM service. I know that won't have been easy for them and it is incumbent on us to listen and to ensure that action is taken. Minister Butler has been very clear on this and I'm going to meet with her and the HSC later this week to follow up on it. It should be said that Minister Butler herself asked for the Mental Health Commission to expand the remit of their report and that's why we have these findings now in the public domain. And I am advised that there's an ongoing exercise of engagement between the departments, the HSC and the Mental Health Commission regarding the, finals, the, the findings. It is essential that a full review of open cases by HSC now takes place to ensure that all children and young people are receiving the appropriate care they needed, as I said earlier. And I'm told this is now underway. And the HSC will arrange further clinical follow-up for any child where it's required and will make direct contact with parents and guardians and necessary. And if parents or guardians have a concern, uh, they're invited to contact uh, their, 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 um, uh, their key worker. Right. Uh, that's uh, Leo Radker, the Taoiseach, uh, speaking in uh, the doll yesterday. What do you make of that, Sean? Uh, well, look, this story is the real scandal that happened this week. This is That, that report was absolutely outrageous mm. in its findings. It, it, they think that young people who were put on psychoactive drugs, anti-psychoactive drugs, uh, and were just left, were, were totally lost the system, lost to follow-up, the drugs mm. do 
very serious things to you uh, and not being properly monitored, being essentially left in the wind is, is absolutely atrocious. The HC has, has started out their review as the, the Tonish or the Taoiseach rather mentioned um, and they say that they have gotten in contact with all of the, the families affected. The, the weirdest thing I found out of the HC statement was that they said that there had been no adverse effects as a result of this. I don't know how in the name of God that they can say there have been no adverse effects to children being lost for a number of years, children aging out of the system without any sort of link up with adult mental health services and when it's mental health as well. You know, you can say, oh, no adverse effects of a broken leg if the leg is healed properly. You can't really say that yep. with, the, with the likes of mental health. Money does need to put in. It's not, a, it's not a thing that you could just fix overnight as it much of the health service and I know a lot of the problems that they've been having is getting the, the properly trained mm. uh, staff, getting the proper consultants in different places where a lot of them you know, maybe don't want to work. Uh, look at the, the Kerry region where there's been a, a doctor uh, telemedicine in from, from the Middle East for a number of years just to fill hours because they can't get anybody to go there. So look, there is no simple answer to this mm. but the teacher did say it is a matter of resources and for far too long mental health in this country was under-resourced. There needs to be a lot more money put behind it, a lot more of a focus. And I do believe Mary Butler, having interviewed her on a number of times, this is sincere about that, mm. but she needs to get the rest of the cabinet behind her because, you know, if this, this is something that is not going away, it is something that thankfully in this country we talk about an awful lot more than we would have done generations ago and that's why you see more people coming forward looking for help, which is a good thing, but they need to get that proper help when they do. All right, uh, and I heard uh, the Taoiseach express his concern as a politician who's hearing complaints like all of the other politicians and indeed as a GP for uh, how children are being failed by mental health services in this country. But this stuff about reviews and uh, coming around and catching up and getting it all right and all that stuff just sounds like empty rhetoric to me. I think we're going to get uh, really uh, damning uh, condemnation uh, from the United Nations uh, Committee on the Rights of uh, the Child uh, when they talk talk about CAMs this time around because seven years ago they made recommendations that were never implemented uh, and uh, up to the last election uh, I think Fianna Fáil uh, not only pursued this vigorously during the Dáil but went into the 2020 election and campaigned on, on the back of it promising change. James Brown was their spokesperson on mental health at the time. He was very very strong on it and indeed it was an issue that Michal Martin uh, took up as one of his own but now he's turning around and saying it's unacceptable. There's there's nothing new in this at all, not whatsoever. It's really hard to listen to, particularly like to me, or Martin, as a former health minister from, from donkeys years ago, say that it's unacceptable when he has been involved in government now for two and a half years, had a much more influence on the government before that than any other Fianna Fáil leader before, uh, and also had a chance, of course, to build up these the services uh, during the 2000s when he was in government, now accepting that you know they got cut, as many did during uh, the crash. And it was also, it, it's one of these uh, sidelines of COVID that we talked about briefly during the pandemic, but I guess now is coming home to roost, where the likes of mental health services the likes of other parts of the health system were all entirely shunted to the side and it's one and I spoke to a couple of doctors about this they sort of agree with the point that it is one of the great shames of the COVID pandemic that there wasn't a sort of a root and branch form of the HSE at the time where you you literally had this two years where there was unlimited resources whatever the health service asked of the government was going to be given across and I can understand to a degree what Paul Reid said at the time when asked about this and he said that you know when you are in the middle of an absolute crisis time in an organisation it's not the time for reform but I have to say it is because there was this chance there to really properly change the way a number of things are done across the health service, including mental health services, and it wasn't taken. So, look, I, I agree with you. Empty rhetoric if nothing is done, and I just really want to see the resources put behind it, accepting there are difficulties, accepting that these are areas where uh, it's very hard to get, uh, get a lot of clinicians in, create more college places, 
as I think Mark Ward from Sinn Féin mm. uh, suggested this week, make that pipeline of training that means that, right, we're not going to fix this problem tomorrow, we might not be fixed by next year or the year after, but that you have a three or four year plan and that by, you know, <laughs> as soon as possible at least, uh, it can hopefully be fixed and better for the people who need it. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment, Sean. Thank you very much indeed. As always, our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now we'll stay with uh, Doll Business and we'll hear about a, a local issue, a, a local issue uh, that we've been talking about on uh, the programme and uh, the Navin rail line, how the government has signed off on uh, the Greater Dublin Transport Strategy and does that mean that that's a green light for the train to arrive in Navin and to leave the station in Navin when it's reopened to go to Dublin. Public transport is one of the biggest solution opportunities in relation to climate change. In my own county of Meath, the majority of workers today left the county to go to work, um, and that happens in no other local authority area. Most of those are forced to use cars. We've had the government announcements in terms of the Navin to Dublin rail line, which is a welcome announcement, but today it, we learned that actually there is no money that has been put aside uh, for that project at all uh, as of yet, and the status of that particular project is it is still a decision of a future government whether or not to back it financially. Is it, is it feasible to live in, in a society where so many people can't get to work in a fast uh, manner and in a climate-friendly manner? And will the government put money behind this project now? Ring fence money to make sure that this project will proceed. Um, on the Navin Rail line, uh, very much welcome uh, the decision of government to proceed with that project. Um, will be beneficial to uh, County Mead, but also uh, my own constituency where it plugs in at Hansfield. Um, and there will, of course, have to be funding uh, to get it uh, through planning and to a railway order. Um, there are already a number of projects in Umbor Panala, as Deputy will know, Metro, Dart, Bus Connects, uh, a lot waiting approval by Umbor Panala. Um, but the next step now is to do planning and design uh, with the view to opening, uh, reopening uh, the rail, rail line to Navan and indeed uh, connecting at Kilmessen uh, and other stops along the way. Right, there you go. That's uh, the Taoiseach. Uh, was he contradicting himself? Uh, he welcomed the fact that he and the rest of government signed off on the Navin rail line uh, to be constructed uh, sometime after 2031, I think it is. Uh, but he, he said funding would have to be made available so that it could go to planning and that a railway order could be put in place. Uh, well, that's a big if, isn't it? Uh, it really is a big if. It's €750 million, Euros, so uh, I'm not sure how excited anybody should be about that. Here's a, a, another question uh, that uh, was put to the Taoiseach yesterday by a uh, local TD, and again, rating, uh, relating to a, a local issue that we've had a lot of discussion about on this programme, and indeed people have been talking about since the outbreak of COVID in this part of the world. The onset of the COVID pandemic in 2020 20, 23 people tragically died in Jalgen House nursing home in Dundalk. Um, unlike other nursing homes, Jalgen House was taken over by the RCSI hospital group. The families have been persistent in trying to get to the truth, and much is in the public domain because of this. They met with both ministers Donnelly and Butler and have been promised a mechanism to offer them the truth and closure that they need. What they want is a public inquiry into what happened at Jalgen House. Um, Taoiseach, you have spoken yourself about the need for an, an inquiry 
um, into the state's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. What we need to do, what we need is a timeline, the work that has been done and what the remit will be. Um, and also, will there be a chance that these families will get a mechanism to provide them with the truth, with the closure and also any learnings that the state needs in relation to this pandemic? Unfortunately, that question uh, that we just heard being put to the Taoiseach uh, by Sinn Féin TD for Laodonis Meath, Rory O'Murakou, well, went unanswered. Uh, another Sinn Féin TD uh, speaking in the Dáil, yes, they had many questions about Pascal Donoghue, the minister who we were speaking about at uh, the outset, uh, and uh, the question uh, about his undeclared election campaign expenses. When you came before the House uh, last week with your version of events, I told you you were caught out at that time. Caught out concealing donations that weren't declared at the time in 2016. Caught out in relation to, uh, despite the fact that you had information back in 2017 of the use of the company van, that you didn't do anything about it. Caught out when the journalists contacted you in 2020, in November of that year, and you said your team reviewed everything and that there was no need to make any adjustments, that everything was okay. And it was only when Sippo actually wrote to you that you created this narrative here to reverse engineer the numbers to make it all seem plausible. But the question I put to you on four occasions last week was the one you could not answer. The information you gave this House was even how many tickets Michael Stone bought off you in a national draw, but you failed to tell us that he paid to put up your election posters in not just one, but two elections. And the reason you couldn't answer that question, because you knew at that time that you were caught out again. Some very strong allegations from Piers Doherty telling Pascal Donoghue the minister had been caught out. It didn't end there. You told the media after your review that there was nothing to see here. But you're after telling the House that during the review that he's identified that Michael Stone put up the posters in 2016. You're also after telling the House that there were some in your team that recollected that Michael Stone made a contribution in 2020. Now, Pascal, please come clean on this here. How many posters did Michael Stone put up in 2016 and 2020? And don't take the mickey out of this here and tell tell us that he only put up 75 polls. Tell us how many posters were you putting up? Uh, Thanks, Deputy, for your two questions. Uh, so, uh, firstly, to be clear, it was only uh, as I initiated a more thorough review that, would ha- that uh, of the 2016 campaign in the aftermath of receiving further contact that it became apparent to me that those individuals had been paid, but they were not paid for by me. It doesn't matter. They were matter. not paid for matter. by Finnegal yeah. Dublin Central. Matter. No, I acknowledge it the point. Matter. The key issue here is that that point had constituted the declaration, and I accept that point. The key mistake that I made, which I've acknowledged to the House this evening, was an acknowledgement uh, that I had assumed they were all done on a voluntary basis. Six men, In relation to how many posters that were put up, um, I'm afraid I have not been able to determine how many posters were put up. But what Thank I you. have been no, able no, 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 to determine... No, you're just what I have been able to... So, so, Deputy, I don't know if you're interested in my answer on my head. Pascal Donoghue may have been under pressure, but uh, the Minister put up a, a strong uh, defence uh, to the accusations being put 
cut to him from Sinn Féin's Piers Doherty. But what you're going to guess is the best answers that I have available. And last week there you wouldn't answer any of the questions that I have available. Because it is a cock and bull story. And you've been caught out time and time again not just in terms of accepting undeclared there was a, a lot of pressure put on the minister by Sinn Féin. Local Labour TD Jed Nash weighed in on this debate. But at the kernel of this is this fantasy that the donations that were made were made to Dublin Central Fine Gael and not to you personally, the guy on the poster. And I think to address that fiction and fantasy, you need to accept that and you need to acknowledge that, that these are donations that were made to you uh, and that, uh, insofar as we can establish, they did not, as described, comply with the law. So you've doubled down on these as donations made to the party uh, and not to you as a candidate. Uh, And let's look, if we can, for a moment at Mr Stone's statement today on this assistance for a friend. And he said, and I quote, the help given in 2020 was arranged through a member of Fine Gael in Dublin Central. And Minister, this is important, and I don't want to be dragging people unnecessarily into this. Genuinely don't. Who was that member? Was that member your election agent? And it is very, very important to establish that, because it is only, in electoral law, it is only uh, the election agent who can legally authorise expenditure. So did Stone's uh, donations and that expenditure have the imprimatur of your election agent at any time? And is there a paper trail, which is required, between a third party who's providing a service and the election agent? That's required uh, in law. And then furthermore, uh, Minister, if the donation was in fact made to Fine Gael, Dublin Central, then if I were the second candidate in 2020, I'd be really annoyed. I'd be really annoyed. Because it seems that she hasn't benefited uh, from uh, the assistance provided by uh, Mr Stone. So how did your running mate benefit if indeed this was a donation to Fine Gael in Dublin Central? And if she didn't, then this is really starting to look like what we believe it is, which is a personal donation made by a corporation uh, that went uh, un, uh, undeclared. It's de facto uh, a donation made to you personally, Minister. That's Labour's Jed Nash uh, speaking in uh, that debate with uh, Minister Pascal Donoghue explaining himself on the third occasion. We may hear more from that later in the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Have you ever thought uh, about organ donation? Many people say it's a wonderful thing, particularly families who have uh, had someone receive organs uh, that have been donated after somebody's death. What should become of your organs after your death? Is it something you've ever given any thought to? Do you carry an organ donation card? Have you made your intentions known? Well, you're soon to be assumed to want to donate your organs after your death unless you specify otherwise. Uh, Ken Corla, uh, it gives me really great pleasure to stand here this evening to introduce um, the Human Tissue Bill to the Dole. Um, 
it is an important piece of legislation. It's a landmark piece of legislation, and it includes provisions for organ donation and transplantation, for post-mortem practice and procedures, for anatomical examination and public displays of bodies after death. Crucially, crucially, what this bill will do is embed in law the concept that consent, where appropriate, is the defining principle around these sensitive areas. And it will establish a regulatory framework for the conduct of these activities. Colin White is the National Advocacy and Projects Manager with the Irish Kidney Association, the IKA. Good morning to you, Colin, and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning, listening there to Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health. Do you welcome this legislation? Um, Yes, the Irish Kidney Association is delighted that there's finally legislation coming in that uh, will put a kind of a legal framework around um, organ donation for transplantation because um, in reality there's been an over-reliance on the Anatomy Act of 1832 um, in relation to organ donation for transplantation in the past. So... um, the fact that uh, I'm on with you at the moment talking about organ donation like is 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 kind of a key um I suppose outcome of this this conversation and it's really about conversation like I think what came out of last night's debate uh, was that it may be introducing an opt out system but the family consent is still uh, central Mm. So, uh, like, the the idea of the legislation is that um, an opt-out register will be uh, developed. So if you'd rather not be an organ donor, you could sign up to the opt-out register. And then everybody else would be considered a potential organ donor. But the key point, and it was repeated again and again last night, mm. and it's very clearly stated in the legislation, is that um, family consent is is the cornerstone of it all. So if now, I'm to pass away and uh, the hospital want or feel they can use my door or organs to save somebody else, uh, my family will have uh, the opportunity to deny them those organs. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, the family can can say now what what they're hoping that the legislation will bring in is is kind of a. A little bit of a nuance, a little bit of a change in how the conversation is started. That at the moment it's it's more kind of um, would your loved one have considered organ donation, or are you aware that they uh, had an organ donor card, or did they get code one one five on their driving license? Um, whereas uh, the legislation, the idea would then that the question would be more are you aware of any reason why uh, your loved one wouldn't want to have donated um, so it's it's to try and kind of get organ donation more as the uh, the national norm that that it's um, this is something that normally happens but if somebody has particularly strong feelings about it that uh, they have the, the legal pathway to mm. um, sign the opt-out register or if they haven't got around to doing that, if the family were aware that uh, they really would rather not have been an organ donor, 
um, they have the chance to Gen- generally uh, in this decline. Generally, uh, in this country, if uh, there's a, a transplant, uh, it's a kidney, isn't it? Uh, the minister said yesterday that at the end of last year, there were 572 people waiting on a, a transplant. 512 of those were on the kidney transplant list. Yes, kidneys are uh, the organs that are most likely to fail uh, of, of all the organs. And equally, um, people awaiting a kidney transplant have the the fallback of dialysis treatment. Uh, so while the, while they're waiting to hopefully get that call for a transplant, um, they their their life can be sustained via uh, dialysis, which is for the majority of them attending a hospital or a dialysis unit three times a week. Mm. Whereas for liver, heart, lung, um, and and pancreas, your options are um, a lot a lot more limited in relation to if you're in kind of end-stage organ failure. Um, if you don't get your transplant, there's not an awful lot that can happen. OK, well, there were just uh, 250 transplants uh, carried out last year. Do you believe this legislation will lead to more transplants? Um, in isolation, no. Um, like, uh, consent for organ donation is only part of the process. Um, I I think we need to understand that whilst there are many, many deaths in every country every year, there's only a tiny percentage of them uh, are in the circumstances that allow for potential organ donation. Like the vast majority of potential donors uh, will pass away in an intensive care unit whilst on a life support machine because the um, they would keep the life support machine on, which uh, would kind of essentially maintain the integrity of the organs long enough for retrieval to go ahead. And even at that, the window of opportunity for organ retrieval is, is really quite tight. So um, this kind of, uh, I suppose, highlights what a lot of the speakers in the Dáil last night were saying about the need for infrastructure to back up this change in legislation that um, we need the surgeons, the anaesthetists, the nurses, the aftercare beds, the intensive care beds for the potential donors. Um, All of these things need to be in place for um, organ donation for transplantation to, 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 to be a success. We need a culture within the hospitals of organ donation. Like we can mm-hmm. push for a culture within society, but we also need to be pushing for a, a culture within uh, all of all of our hospitals that uh, will make a change. So if you're on dialysis, uh, your kidney is failing or has failed? Um, our kidneys are quite amazing things. Um, like you can actually function right down to about kind of about twelve percent of kidney function. Uh, like you can you can be working fine, so maybe a twenty percent kidney function, and you won't be feeling a hundred percent, but you'll be doing okay. But it's kind of when you're getting down around kind of ten, twelve percent, that's when you need outside intervention. So the likes of dialysis or ideally a transplant. And I think it's it's important that your listeners realise that there's only approximately one in three of those who are on dialysis uh, are currently active on the transplant pool. Now, part of that is down to some of them are just not suitable for transplant. There's uh, a number of other illnesses or, or reasons why surgery wouldn't be appropriate. But I think if we did have 
a greater potential supply uh, along with uh, the ability to carry out the transplants and have the aftercare. Um, I think more of these people could be considered for transplant. Okay, but um, dialysis is, is life-saving, but uh, it's also life-changing, isn't it? Uh, it's far from an easy ride for people who are on dialysis. Correct. Uh, the the illness burden and equally the treatment burden is, is quite significant. Like, as I said, you're going into a hospital or a dialysis unit three times a week. Um, typical length of treatment is maybe mm. three and a half to four hours each time. And um, is there a time? Is, is there a time limit uh, or a general expectation for how long uh, you'll survive on dialysis, or is that unlimited? It's not unlimited. It depends on uh, your health. Like at the time of starting dialysis, um, my own wife uh, will actually next month will be marking twenty-two years on dialysis. Um, so, like it's it's a blunt instrument. Like it carries out the functions of the kidneys, but it also uh, it's 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 kind of like cracking a, a nut with an oversized hammer. Um, it 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 causes other kind of long term problems as as well. And um, I think the impact that it has on uh, the household, like where the individual is living as well, that just the, the the fact that the person has to go three times a week for dialysis every week, like we don't get. Uh, a break for mm. Christmas. You don't get uh, kind of two weeks off for summer or, or anything like that. Like it's, okay. it's essentially um, dialysis. Really, is kind of like a part-time life support machine. Like without it, um, pe- pe- people are going to be in serious trouble. And that's why it's such a, an important conversation for us to have. Uh, hopefully, the legislation uh, will help uh, the situation for well, the I, over. I think one people. one final how how your listeners can mm. engage is if they free text the word donor, D-O-N-O-R, to 50050 to request an organ donor card. And then the donor card is an icebreaker. It's a way of getting the conversation going at, okay. at home uh, because there's a space for your next of kin to sign okay. on the card. And um, literally, you're, you're going to not only save the lives of the recipients, it's the people around them. You're going to transform okay. their lives too. Donor like to 50050. Colin, well, I have to leave there. Thank you very much indeed for Thanks, Thank you. Okay. Colin White, uh, the National Advocacy and Projects Manager with uh, the IKA, the Irish Kidney Association. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, we've heard uh, the Taoiseach Leo Vratker speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. He left the Dáil to go to the Irish Farm Centre in Blue Bell and address the IFA's annual general meeting. It's the 68th such meeting. And let's speak now to Brian Rush, who's a Deputy President of of the Irish Farmers Association. Good morning to you, Brian, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. There's always a lot of concern that farmers bring to government. What did government bring to farmers yesterday? I suppose, listen, we had uh, we had the Minister of Agriculture and, and the two junior ministers there early in the day, and we had the Taoiseach in dinner afterwards. And listen, you know, they, they, they probably... They, they told us a lot of what we wanted to hear um, and a bit of what we didn't want to hear. Um, but I suppose our message to them, uh, as important as their message to us, was that you know farmers are ready, willing and able to um, to move and, and achieve the, the sectoral emissions cuts that have been set for us. But we need support to do it. And some of the policies, or a lot of the current policies that we see coming from the Department of Agriculture at the minute, will result in reducing production on farm and hurting farm income and simply that is in no, that will in no way facilitate or help farmers 
in achieving those sectorial emissions targets. But you believe policy is being driven by the Department of the Environment uh, and you're asking government not to let Eamon Ryan or the Green Party dictate on agricultural policy. 100%. If you look at uh, uh, like a lot of the regulations, like uh, like if you look back, a lot of the policies and a lot of the, t- the talk about policies over the last while, they're very strategic in terms of they're trying to affect the sectorial targets by putting pressure on income and farm level and productivity. So, listen, very simply, if you put pressure on a farm, they have to reduce numbers or reduce productivity. The government thinks that that's going to affect the sectorial emissions cuts. It won't. All that's going to happen there is going to put farmers under pressure and they won't be in a position to invest in their farm, to keep farming and to move the dial, to, to move the dial further in terms of reaching those targets. We believe that if you support farmers' income, keep farmers farming, um, keep them productive, that will be in a much better place to adapt and change their farm practices to, uh, to meet the challenge. Mm. Uh, but farmers got off the hook, did they not, in the latest climate action plan, the implementation of it? And I, I don't think so at all, Mike, to be honest. If you look well, there's target, no obligation on farmers to do anything. Uh, I mean, there's this overall target of a uh, 25% reduction in uh, emissions, which people would say uh, is far too small because it's uh, the greatest offender. It's the sector that offends most and creates the most uh, emissions. But there's no specific detail on how that target will be met. There's no... Uh, there, there's a climate action plan there, OK, in terms mm. of how farmers can change their practices adopt uh, new measures on farm, improve breeding, reduce nitrogen fertiliser. Listen, the government has a big plan around anaerobic uh, digestion and Mm. around around renewables. That could could help as well. We need to see some hard policy there, not just talk, right? So if agriculture does have a plan, it has a plan that starts at farm level and moves right up through the sector in terms of research and processing level. And I would argue that agriculture is the only sector with a credible plan. And it's also the only sector that farmers are, are that the people are on a journey to achieve. But people need to remember as well, right, that farmers are citizens as well. And they, farmers not only will have to adjust their businesses and take the, to take the pressure of reaching those cuts, but they'll also have to um, help to achieve the cuts that we're expected to see in electricity. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss and in transport mm. I, I, absolutely uh, but as you say that's the same with all of us uh, when it comes uh, to the sector that you're working in um, there is nothing specific I, I think that the approach uh, correct me if I, I'm wrong Brian is to incentivize farmers to diversify yeah, well, again, I, make, I disagree with you that, that there is nothing specific. There's a very detailed climate action plan, which farmers have signed up to. Um, there is uh, methods of, uh, like the Signpost Farm Programme, for example, that Chagas go rolling out, that IFA are a stakeholder in and we're supportive of, is a way of getting that knowledge out mm. to farmers to adapt new practices. So I think farmers, one of the big challenges we'll have is, is getting the research and technology onto farm level. But you're going to have to reduce the national herd, are you not? If you're going to meet that target of uh, 25%, but there will be no sanction for uh, farmers uh, who don't reduce cattle numbers. Uh, The idea is that they'll be incentivized to go into other areas like forestry. Uh, listen, and, and forest is a good point on forestry there to be made as well, in fairness. And mm-hmm. farmers, if you look at some of the arguments being made about forestry, farmers will, will, will tell you, if you apply for a forestry licence in Ireland, if you want to get forestry planted or even sell the forestry you have, it is a nightmare, a bureaucratic nightmare. And if some of the roadblocks were removed and that system was tidied up to become a bit more farmer-friendly, we'd see more forestry planted in this country. And there'd be no need to bring in Gresham House, a foreign investment fund to buy up Irish land to plant forestry in order to facilitate the government to meet its climate action targets, right? Mm. We believe that if you facilitate and support farmers, these targets will be met. We don't need to outsource that. The farmers are on the ground. We just need to make it easier for them to access those schemes. But the other important point to be made is diversification, and there's been a lot made about diversification to renewables. But we've seen no hard you know, figures in that. We've seen no hard plan for it. We have said to the government that, sure, we're interested in renewables. We're going to be delighted to, to, to get involved there because farmers are crying out to be getting involved in it. But the government has yet to come up with anything credible that could encourage us to, to get into it. And the point being is that if you're in a sector that you're making a living on, we look at the dairy sector, the tillage sector, those farmers, or the dairy sector in particular, if you're a dairy farmer and you're making a living out of that, and it's, it's you know, and over the last while, it has been a good living out of dairy farming. Why you... Like, why would you, why would a farmer diversify out of a sector that is supporting his family and into a sector that leaves him economic, or leaves him or her economically vulnerable? And we have yet to get that answer from the government. Okay, but I would have thought that you will get answers uh, by way of incentives and grants. But the point is, the incentives or grants aren't there. They're not good enough to encourage farmers out. That's the point. So if, if, if people are serious, and people are serious about diversifying for a whole manner of reasons, but again, you're not going to diversify. I couldn't encourage anyone to diversify their farm mm. business into a sector that leaves them in jeopardy. And that, that's like, you know, in fairness, right, there's a lot of positivity around the organic scheme, for example. There's very strong incentives around getting into organics, which is a real positive for anyone who wants to get into it, right? Mm. But the worry you have to have is, if you look at the market for organic produce, so while a farmer will get into organics the supports are there to support the farmer in that transition and to support their income. You would have to worry that the market that is there for the end product isn't as strong as it needs to be to support that farmer long term in the sector. Okay. On the other hand, uh, can I ask you, do you accept uh, that we don't have enough trees in this country and we have to have an awful lot more trees in this country if we're going to see that 25% reduction in agriculture? 
I, I'd accept that forestry needs to become more part of the farming mix in Ireland. Absolutely, right? And But the important point to make mm. is that we need forestry in the right places and we can't, we can't have forestry in parts of the country where we've seen where some counties are carrying a, a, a too much of a burden for the rest of the country in terms of forestry. But I don't like... It's very rare... I, I, like I've never come across a farmer that's opposed to forestry. Um, that they might be opposed to too much forestry in an area. But the problem is as a farmer, and it is a nightmare, if you go in into the planning process and the licensing process as a farmer in this country for forestry, it is a long, drawn-out process, and it, it, it just doesn't need the farmer confident, uh, confident in that sector. For example, any other sector, any other schemes that farmers get involved in, mm. to, to the credit of the department, they're fairly good in payouts, and they're fairly good in processing problems except for the forestry department. Okay, do you accept that we need close to double the amount of trees in uh, the country? The Taoiseach was saying yesterday, we need to go from what is 11% of the land covered by forestry now to 18%. What I'd say, Mike, is that, again, I'd repeat, I'd accept that forestry on farm uh, needs to become more attractive and more part of the mix in terms of our agricultural landscape. And I don't think anyone's in denial of that. And again, like that's an example of like of of of, of, of like, you know coming out and saying we need to double this or double that. The fact of the matter is, if people want to see farmers growing more trees, mm. that has to be a commercial proposition. There's no, like a farmer is not going to plant land mm. or get into forestry and see themselves worse off. Okay, just, so no one else would do it. So I don't so, think farmers should be expected to. Do it. So if we can put the reasons aside, and they're important reasons, uh, you're not going to impoverish yourself. But if we can put those reasons aside for a moment uh, and take the bottom line there, which is what you've said, is that farmers can't do it. Uh, is it wrong to bring in this British investment company, uh, uh, and what will it mean? Uh, there was a Sinn Féin debate on this last night. We'll hear more about that in a moment. Uh, but I heard Richard Boyd Barrett say in the Dáil yesterday that uh, this plan that Keelcha has will result in 250,000 acres being turned over to forestry, which is the equivalent of land the size of County Carlow. Uh, but uh, the minister and indeed the Taoiseach uh, were saying otherwise. They were saying it'll account for roughly 1.5% of new forests developed between now and 2050. Yeah, listen, I'm not sure the figures, and those figures go out there, and I wasn't aware of them, I wasn't watching the debate, but the point I'd say is that there will be no need to bring in outside investors in order to achieve the forestry targets if the process for a farmer to get involved in forestry was streamlined and and uh, was streamlined and an easier process for a farmer because that out now at the minute, if you have a neighbour in forestry, they're going through a nightmare trying to get forestry felled, and they're talking to their neighbour, they're talking to their next door neighbour. So if a guy was thinking about planting forestry and he talks to his forester neighbour, he'd only be put off by what his, his neighbour's going through. And that's listen, and, and it just is a bad name now for farmers because you could get tied up in bureaucracy. You're not sure whether you're going to get a felon licence, when are you going to get a felon licence. Like the stories of farmers that applied for a felon licence when timber was high in price, and they only got the felon licence when the market had nearly collapsed. Uh, are farmers happy with the government? Listen, farmers are under pressure, Mike. You know, okay. uh, <laughs> if you look at ch- change and shift in policy, and it's a point I made to the, to the Ministry yesterday, is... You know, being a farmer at the minute, you know, you're you're you feel like you're swimming against the tide. You're trying to get everything sorted. You're trying to meet compliance measures, and then the goalposts are changing. So I wouldn't say farmers are overly happy. The government, no. Um, I think the government needs to kind of take a step back, 
and and you know understand a bit now what farmers are going through. Like we heard figures from Barbier recently, the 16 billion euros of product was exported. I think it was last year. That didn't happen without farmers. So when CEOs and you know people in rooms are talking about that, talking about the 16 billion euros and what it means to the exchequer and what it means to the economy and what it means to the government, and they're congratulating themselves. I think they have to take a step back and think about how they got there and why they're there. And that's because farmers on the ground of what they're doing on their own farms. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, we'll be hearing about that Sinn Féin motion uh, on uh, this move by Kielce to facilitate uh, that British investment company in a few moments' time. But thank you for joining us uh, this morning, Brian. Much appreciated. Brian Rush, Deputy President of uh, the Irish Farmers Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, you've just heard the IFA's Brian Rush say that the incentives are not in place for farmers to go into forestry and uh, that farmers would see their income reduced if uh, they were to start growing trees. The bottom line is they simply can't afford to do this. I think we shouldn't lose sight of what the objective here is. The objective is to increase dramatically um, the amount of trees uh, on our island and the amount of our land uh, that is under forestry. We want to go up from about 11% of our land being forestry to something more like 18%, and that means planting uh, millions of trees. And we need trees for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, Yes, we need trees for timber, and that does include uh, spruce trees, conifers, uh, trees that are suitable for timber, so we can build houses to help us with the housing crisis. And that's why we need those types of trees. We need other types of trees too, native woodland, for example, uh, and we need it for climate action, we need it for biodiversity, we need, need, need it for leisure too. And it is intended to have a mix of different types of plantations exactly for that reason. Because we need trees for lots of different reasons. Timber to build new homes, which are desperately needed. Uh, also for climate action, also for biodiversity, uh, and as well for leisure as well. And all new quilted forests are going to be open to, to the public. That's... The Taoiseach, Leo Vranker, uh, one of uh, the ways that Quilce is hoping that millions of trees will get planted in this country is uh, through a scheme that it has established with uh, UK, a British investment company uh, who uh, is planning uh, to plant millions of trees or thousands of trees as the case may be in this country it shouldn't happen according to Sinn Féin and a private member's motion was tabled to that effect by Matt Carthy uh, yesterday he's uh, the Sinn Féin spokesperson on agriculture and he's on the line with us and a very good morning to you Matt Carthy and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning do you believe uh, that uh, as the Taoiseach said we need to go from 11% of uh, the land covered by forestry to 18% the equivalent of planting millions of trees in this country? Yes, we need to plant um, huge swathes of additional forestry for a number of different reasons and the reasons um, are a point on which I agree with Leo Varadkar. If we have any prospect at all of meeting our climate action targets to address the biodiversity crisis, then we need to plant more forests. The difficulty is, and this is where government have failed dismally, because they have set an annual target of 8,000 hectares of new afforestation each year. Since they came into office in 2020, the figures have been just over a quarter of that and getting worse. And the reason for that is because farmers and local communities have largely disengaged from forestry policy. And 
The reason for that is because their experiences of forestry over the past decade or more have been very negative. So there's no hope of resolving the forestry crisis. There's no hope of reaching the targets that the Taoiseach has set out Mm. unless we re-engage those farmers and communities. And if that was the objective, if the objective was to re-engage farmers and communities, then the worst possible starting point is Coolidge's announced joint venture with a British investment fund. How how does it... um pay Gresham House, uh, this British investment company, uh, to uh, go into forestry in this country if it doesn't pay Irish farmers? Well, here's the the difficulty that Gresham House will be um, able to draw down um, a significant amount of state subsidies, as would farmers, it has to be said, in terms of uh, planting licences. They would receive payments per hectare on an annual basis, depending on the type of trees that they were planted. But crucially, they will have behind them a 200 million investment fund, which will allow them to purchase huge swathes of land and undoubtedly actually buy um, um, and and inflate the price of land that obviously has caused concerns for a lot of farmers. But here's the crux when we're talking mm. about all of the, the need for additional additional forestation, when we're talking about the targets that have been, uh, been set and when we talk about the huge hostility that has been created by this. Of the 12,000 hectares of um, land that Gresham House intend to initially purchase, only 3,500 hectares of that will actually represent new forestry. The rest of it will be existing forestry that they intend to purchase. So this isn't about climate action. It's not even about planting trees. For Gresham House, this is a corporate profit exercise. And the difficulty from the government's perspective is that almost uniquely, the announcement has managed to unite everybody in terms of uh, those who have an interest in this. Environmentalists, farmers, the fire, forestry sector, local communities have all been united in their calls for the deal to be scrapped. Has have been many members of government parties, although um, when it comes to the crooks, it, it appears that there's a problem here because mm. when it, the, 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 the clip that you've played of Leo Varadkar, um, he was outlining that the Keelcha deal with Gresham House wasn't the preferred model. Michal Martin said that alternatives should be explored. Mm. The Fianna Fáil minister and the Green Party minister of state that have responsibility for forestry have been creating the impression mm. that government knew nothing about Kilch's in, in, intentions that they were essentially caught on the hop but that isn't true because yesterday I received in deep in the text of a parliamentary question response from the Minister for Agriculture confirmation that in June of last year a shareholder letter of expectation was issued to Kilcha by government which directed them to develop initiatives that included uh, included um, partnerships in a subsidiary or partnership enterprise and it's now clear what actually happened Kielce told government of their intentions with Gresham House or with a similar body and then government issued a shareholder letter of expectation which essentially gave the state-owned company the go-ahead to seal the deal so this wasn't about government being caught on the hop this was about government keeping the doll the Oireachtas committees that have Mm. responsibility and the public in the dark about something that they were pursuing Uh, as you say the government claims 
times it was caught on the hop and the Taoiseach uh, seemed to uh, imply uh, that Kielce was act- acting uh, 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 on its own bat in relation to this, uh, that he certainly had no idea of it and his intention was not uh, that uh, forestry would be created uh, by getting British or overseas investment companies uh, to take on the job. We can hear a little bit more of what he said now because he also seems to be indicating that it's too late. The contracts have been signed. I do want to be clear on this. Um, Contracts are signed. This wasn't approved by government. Contracts are now signed on it. Um, But I do want to be clear about this. Um, This is not our intended, our preferred main model of going forward when it comes to increasing the amount of forests in Ireland. What we want primarily is Irish farmers taking up the forestry programme taking up the schemes that are now available. And that's that's going to be the mainstay uh, of our forest programme, uh, not arrangements such as this. You reject that claim, Matt Carthy? Yes, that's simply not true, that government weren't aware or that government somehow um, have been um, caught out by Keelch Acton unilaterally on this. It, uh, now We now know that the Minister of State, a Green Party minister, bizarrely, was actually aware that this was Keelch's preferred... Pippa Hackett. Um, yes, back as far as March 2021. But as I say, this letter of expectation that was issued by government to Kielce clearly opened up the, um, the, the, the roadmap. And here's the difficulty again. Mm. As we've seen by the universal reaction, um, what will happen is that this joint venture will actually hinder any prospect of securing the public support that would be necessary to meet the afforestation targets that have been, ha, have been established. So the, 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 the double speak that we've seen from government on this, because on the one hand they say, oh, well, Kielce have done this deal, it's signed, we can't do anything about it. But we have told Kielce to change tack. Now, if Kielce can't be told what to do in respect of the Gresham House um, deal, as government would have us believe, then why would we have any faith that Kielce will pay attention to any direction from government into the future? The I, truth of the matter is that the owners of Kielce are the government. The Minister for Agriculture and the Minister for Public Expenditure, who has his own problems, of course, they're the shareholders on behalf of the Irish people. They own the company. Now, to suggest to anybody that they, as per, that people who own a company can't direct it what to do is laughable or it would be were it not for so, uh, so serious because at the mm. end of the day, what this deal is going to see is tens of millions of euro of Irish taxpayers' money being used to subsidise what is essentially a land grab by a British investment firm. And anybody who believes... How much of a land grab? Well, How much is, land are we talking about potentially? Well, what they're talking, what they have outlined is um, that this current arrangement will see the purchase of 12,000 hectares of, of, of land. But Gresham House are a major international company. In Britain alone, I think the figure is that they own 140,000 hectares of a forestry land worth mm. 1.8 billion euro. Now, if anyone wants to suggest that uh, an entity of that nature is coming into Ireland for 12,000 hectares, which in the wider scheme of their operation mm. is a minuscule amount. Well, then, as I said in the doll last night, they need their head examined. This is clearly the first step as far as they're concerned. What, um, what about this estimate of uh, the potential of 250,000 acres? This was... Uh Richard Boyd Barrett's claim uh, that it could result in that which is effectively uh, the size of County Carlow. Uh, does he need his head uh, tested? 
Well, I, I won't answer for Richard Boy Barrett, but what I will tell you is that Keelche, when they appear before the Oireachtas Agriculture Committee in December, cited the figure of 100,000 hectares, which is in around the figures in terms of acres that you've suggested, mm. as, um, as their ambition for the purchase through um, through partnerships of this kind and 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 others. Will it do anything? To, will it do anything for climate change? Sorry to cut across you because uh, I thought one of the ideas was that you'd reduce the uh, cattle herd because farmers would be incentivised to go into forestry. Uh, but if it's somebody else doing it, well, undoubtedly the farmers will continue to farm cattle. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, then well, then that's half uh, of the objective thrown out the window. What about the other half, which is the trees themselves and what they bring to the environment because I think there is some concern as well uh, that they want those trees to chop them down and sell them for wood they'll be doing that maybe sooner than people would like Well here's the crux of this and this is I listen to Green Party um, representatives um, point the finger at everybody else in relation to climate action failures they have a Minister of State with responsibility for afforestation and as I said they've been planting less than two and a half thousand hectares last year of new afforestation against the target of eight thousand the year before was even worse Um, our climate action plans are working under the assumption, our 2030 and 2050 targets in respect of climate action, are working under the assumption that we, we have already been planting 8,000 hectares per year for the past three years. And if we fail on forestry, then we will fail on climate action. And we are failing on forestry. Now, there is a, di- a difficulty because the ty- likes of Gresham House clearly have a profit motivation. That is their sole and primary focus. Um, and when a company is entering into forestation with that um, mind, and they, what they will do is they will plant as many Cisco spruce as they can, and they will minimise the amount of broadleaf native species that they, that they plant. Whereas the experience shows us that if we can create a situation where every farmer plants some trees on their land and has an income stream for it, then that um, complements their farming operation and ensures that there's a benefit not only to the farmer, but also to the local community and the local economy. This deal, I have to say, does nothing for the environment, does nothing for the economy, and does nothing for local communities and in fact will lead to increased hostility among communities for the very notion of forestry, which in turn is actually going to set back any prospect of us reaching our climate action targets or addressing our biodiversity crisis probably for a generation. Okay, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin spokesperson on agriculture, Matt Carthy TD. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, there's a, an extreme crisis in child and adolescent mental health uh, services in uh, this country. There's nothing at all new about that. Uh, indeed, it's an age-old problem, but has been highlighted because of uh, that interim report uh, from uh, the Mental Health Commission this week. The problem is acute locally uh, and... We have some of uh, the worst waiting times in uh, the country. There's 67 children in County Louth and in County Meath who are waiting over a year to see a psychiatrist. If you were listening to us uh, yesterday, you'd have heard Richard tell us that he's spent nine days trying to save his 16-year-old daughter's life. Uh, It's been a very trying situation for Richard and his daughter. Uh, He managed to get her admitted to to our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. Um, She was discharged. He had to uh, accept that because she had a a CAMS appointment. Uh, And uh, at that appointment, uh, she was uh, referred 
uh, to uh, be treated uh, as a, an inpatient. Uh, obviously a very serious situation uh, and there's no disputing that the doctors want her uh, to go to Lindara. Uh, but that's not going to happen today, tomorrow, probably not for months uh, and there's little prospect of going anywhere. Richard doesn't feel safe to sleep, let alone anything else, because of the crisis his daughter is going through at the moment. So he went to Tally yesterday. We're going to be speaking to Richard uh, in uh, the next five or ten minutes uh, because he's still in Tala, uh, hoping that somebody will help him to help his daughter through this crisis. Uh, but it, it tells its own story about the crisis that there is in camps. Any of us who work in politics, who have a constituency service, anybody who's worked as a GP, uh, many parents will understand that we do have problems in our CAM service for quite some time. Um, many children get very good care from CAMs, uh, but it falls short uh, for a lot of children uh, as well. Um, and it is a matter of resources, although they have been improved a lot in recent years, uh, and also issues of governance, which also need to, be, uh, need to be resolved. And I have to say I'm particularly concerned uh, to hear of children who've been prescribed um, antipsychotic medications being lost to follow-up. Um, that really does fall very far below the basic standard of care that should be expected in any country. Um, child or adult, if somebody is prescribed um, antipsychotic medicines, uh, they have to be followed up. Um, not just six months later, probably even more frequently than that. And I am very concerned that that occurred. I would wish to understand better uh, why it occurred. And I know the HSC is now contacting all of those so-called open cases uh, to make sure that uh, those children are being looked after. Including those 140 lost children. That's uh, the Taoiseach Leo Radker speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Frida McKittrick is the head of uh, the Barnardo's Guardians Ad Litem service and on the line. And good morning to you, Frida. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. This is going to be discussed again, uh, undoubtedly, at the United Nations Committee on uh, Protection of Children. Uh, and the Children's Ombudsman was in Geneva yesterday telling that committee uh, that he was angry that there was this opportunity seven years ago when the services here were criticised so strongly by the UN committee that uh, little was done to reform services. Uh, It's all well and good hearing the Taoiseach say all the right things there, isn't it? Uh, But action is what's needed. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hello, Frida. Hi. Um, and, and look, action has been needed for a very long time and those of us who have been working with children in care and vulnerable children have been saying that for years and indeed the Ombudsman himself came out and said this should have been done seven years ago. Yeah, uh, and it really is no surprise. Uh, people are, are very taken aback and shocked uh, by what they're hearing uh, this week uh, and how children have, uh, to some extent, been uh, abandoned by services that just don't exist. And and unfortunately, I'm not shocked by it because it's something that I've been seeing in my working life and in the working life of my colleagues for a very long time now. Um, It's very disappointing. It's very upsetting. Um, It's very difficult. I mean, some of my colleagues were commenting about, you know, like trying to get a child into cans is, is a real battle. Um, that children with who are obviously presented with mental health and disabilities are being written off as a behavioural issue. Children writing notes that they wanted to kill themselves and tying ligatures around their neck or not meeting the criteria for CAMS. So something has gone badly wrong and there needs to be written branches of the system. Mm. Particularly, I was struck by your, your caller yesterday, Richard, because he was such a powerful advocate for his daughter 
and children in care don't necessarily have that because they're part of the care system. We know that there's a national shortage of social workers and a high turnover of staff. And it really struck me that there was a parent doing what a parent needed to be. But our children in care who are having the same kinds of problems don't necessarily have that advocacy um, that that, that um, Richard's daughter has from him. Mm. And there's treatment and there's observation. Uh, if nothing else, Richard is hoping that uh, he could get some observation for his daughter. Yeah, absolutely. Look, one of the frustrations that we have is that CAMs are turning down children that they've never seen. Um, and that we want them to come and look at them, to spend time with those children, to really get to understand them before they make a diagnosis or before they decide that the children are not for them. Too often I have been to meetings where there's maybe 10 or 15 professionals in the room all talking about their experience of the child. And yet at the end of that meeting, CAMS will write a letter afterwards and say, unfortunately, this child has not met the criteria. The child has never been seen. And that's a huge frustration for us. Mm. We need people to actually see these children. The, 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 the other group who are really badly disadvantaged are children who may meet the criteria for CAMS, but who also may have another condition such as intellectual disability or autism. They're being a funneled across to the um, the children's disability networks who don't have the capacity to deal with children who have maybe been subject to abuse and trauma mm. and who have under other underlying conditions that are affecting their mental health. So the system is just not joined up at all. No. Uh, and uh, again, if I can use Richard, because it's one uh, example that our listeners can uh, identify too. If you uh, talk about his daughter, who's been attending CAMS for six or seven years, I think at this stage, hasn't had a, a diagnosis. Um, there is no condition that has been diagnosed. Uh, that's a common problem with CAMS, isn't it? It is. And there are some conditions that young people have that they show signs of in teenage that can't be diagnosed until they're older and, and, and into adulthood. So you get the you get the kind of constellation of difficulties such as self-harm, suicidal ideation, where CAMS may be saying this isn't a mental illness, but where we know that these young people, once they attain adulthood, are going to be very heavy users of the mental health system. Mm. And... Uh, Richard's daughter um, uh, has been prescribed psychoactive drugs. Uh, we heard what the Taoiseach said there, uh, who is a, a GP. I don't think anybody would argue with him. And I, I think it's very important from what I understand of it about follow-ups and blood tests uh, for many different reasons. Uh, but uh, again, like that, his daughter hasn't had those follow-up blood tests. Well, the follow-up and blood tests are absolutely essential because the, 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 these are very strong medications that impact on a young person, not just psychologically, but physically as well. And there can be very serious complications and very serious side effects. And it's absolutely necessary that the regular blood tests and regular medical observation, that's an area where it's a real potential for harm for children. Mm. Because if, if, even if the, the psychiatric medication is doing the child some good psychologically and is able to help them to, to, to cope on a day-to-day basis, there can be something going on physically within their system that could be endangering them. Mm. So that's an absolutely key point. Right. Um, why is it being neglected? Uh, is it uh, uh, out of sight, out of mind? Um, that people don't want to complain? That there's stigma? Uh, is it uh, that uh, 
as a society, we don't care. Uh, I, I know that personally I find it unacceptable. Uh, I pay my taxes. I'm glad to pay my taxes. I hope my taxes are put to good work. Uh, and this is certainly one area uh, that I, I'd like to see my taxes used. I think we could do an awful lot better in a very wealthy country like this. I don't think that we should be failing children in, in this way. Why is it that we're failing children so badly? Look, I think you hit the nail on the head there that there's a whole stigma about mental health. But there's a particular issue about children's mental health because if we can address a lot of mental health, anxiety, stress issues within children, it stops them from developing more serious forms of adult mental health problems. And that's very clear. That comes out in the um, Mental Health Commission's report um, that if you get that joined up, support, if you get that joined up help, if you get the multidisciplinary uh, support for children when they're younger, they may go on to develop an adult mental health problem, but it will be it could be lesser. Years and years ago, decades ago at this stage, um, I worked in London and that was one of the initiatives that we were pushing through was for mental health services for 16 to 25 year olds. It was separate from the mental health for the more mature adults to allow children and young people to really have the specific care that they need because it's different from the adult population. They need help beyond 18. They need help into the early 20s. None of us would put one of our own children aged at 23, 24, 25. So why are CAMS putting children out when they're 18? Frida, we leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Frida McKittrick, head of uh, the Bernardo's Guardians Ad Litem Service. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. So back to Tala we go where Richard is in the hospital with his 16-year-old daughter for the second day running. It's the 10th day in a row that Richard has been appealing to the system, if you like, for help to save his daughter's life. Richard, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. A lot of people in touch with us yesterday uh, hoping uh, that uh, you got some positive news. What can you tell us? Hi, good morning, Michael. Yeah, well... We got a little bit of good news um, this morning um, from a meeting that uh, the, the hospital uh, medical team had with CAMS and, and they've advised that, that an assessment team are coming in to see Amy today with a view to um, assessing her needs for the residential care uh, placements within, in, a, in a CAMS um, facility. But she doesn't have a bed. They don't have a bed for in, in that facility as yet. So... You know, that could be tomorrow, the next day. It could be a week away. We don't know. Mm. That's not really um, any different than what happened no. in Drada on Monday, is it? I mean, that's what they said on Monday, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's what Cam's told us on Thursday, you know. Oh, so, sorry, I beg your pardon, um, Thursday. Well, yeah. uh, Thursday and Monday. So yeah. uh, we were with them twice in Drada. Yeah. Um, you know, from, from the first, from the incident on Monday, we had the appointment for Cam's on Thursday. They told us they were making a referral. On Monday, they confirmed they were making the referral. Today, they've told us, that an assessment team so it's it, mm. it's one step further if you like that, that an assessment so team are coming she'd have a bed if there was a bed yeah, yeah. and they don't that's mm. the problem is yeah. that there isn't an emergency uh, bed facility for psychiatric adolescents mm. in this country um, you have to wait till one comes available so there isn't a hospital as such and whilst the hospital facility cater for adult patients in that regard so in other words there are or psych wards for adults in Blanche and in, 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 in Tala and in, in a few different hospitals around the country. So if, if a patient is in urgent need of care, they're brought in and, and put into a bed and you know admitted to a hospital pending 
specialised care in a residential mm. unit when it comes available. And that's why you're in Tala, uh, yeah, after I mean, being in the Lourdes uh, and then the appointment at CAMS, uh, uh, you went to Tala because they have a psych unit and hoped that somebody would be able to help. Uh, mm-hmm. If they can't uh, admit her there, uh, what's going to happen if there isn't an emergency bed? She just gets left on a, on a, on a bench, on a chair. That's that's what they're telling me. Or sent know. home. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's what most parents end up doing, is taking their kids home. And then, you know, fortunately, we often don't find out what happens to those kids. And, uh, you know, what, what, mm. what, what the future care or, or, you know, circumstances they're in. But, and that's, you know, with, uh, that's without treatment. Uh, and despite, mm. despite going through two hospitals and two appointments with GAMS, pleading with help uh, and, yeah. and highlighting that there's this crisis and the doctors, the experts agree, uh, I take it the, there's no let up in this. The crisis continues. No, it, it does, and and the the hospital are still refusing to admit her, and to and, and to give her the basic human rights of 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 a bed, and 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 care, um, and and they're just hiding behind the and it, this is not don't get me wrong this is not Tala Hospital this is every hospital and every parent who's brought their child into this. And this is every person in the country. I mean, this is our yeah. so, this is our society. We we we've, we voted over a decade ago, uh, in a children's rights referendum. It sounds like your daughter has no rights. No. No, and, and she's been completely ignored and abandoned and left, you know, as I said, in, in a room with a bench um, because they won't give her a bed. They won't even give her a cubicle in the emergency department. Um, and, I, and I, you know, they, they just seem to, as I say, hide behind the policy. And they keep saying to us, our hands are tied. Like the amount of times I've heard, you know, medical team in, in, in the hospital saying our hands are tied, our hands are tied. These people, you know, are, are, are our carers. Um, these people, you know, you, you see on the telly, you know, took the Hippocratic Oath to, to, to care for the patients no matter what. And yes, they're, they're seeing, you know, a child obviously in, in distress and requiring medical care, mm. but they won't, you know. What do you think you're going to do, Richard? Are you going to take the bench or do you think you're going to go home? No, I'm going to stay there. Um, mm. Like, I, 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 you know, update yesterday kind of around half five from the psychiatric doctor or about half four basically was saying the same thing and, and unfortunately the psychiatric doctor was the only person who mm. was coming to talk to me none of the medical team would talk to me so I told the psychiatric doctor to advise the medical team that I'd be leaving Amy at six o'clock in their care and mm. that they, they as a hospital have a duty of care to look after and mm. um, that I you know my tank is empty I, I'm on nine days Practically with no sleep, trying to, trying to, you know, keep my daughter alive, and um, in the absence of any, you know, assistance forthcoming, I'm gone. It's not something I, I, I chose to do lightly, but I said I was, I was walking out if they didn't help me. It's shameful. I can't tell you how sorry I feel for you. I can't tell you how much I don't want to feel sorry for you, and I know you don't want me to feel sorry for you no. or anybody else. But why do we live in a country like this? I mean, it's yeah. just beyond belief. Why do we have to go to those measures to do that? Um, now. Shortly after that, she went away and two senior people came from the medical team in to see me, who, who, you know, as I said, hadn't come near me all day. And, you know, but the same story, hands are tied, blah, 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 blah. But the one update they did give me um, was that they were having a meeting the following morning, which is this morning at nine o'clock with senior management in the in the hospital and that they were uh, going to be liaising with camps to see what the update on the bed was and that they, they would then hopefully be able to 
give me more information in the morning. Okay. So they um, last night at about half ten, after bringing Amy out for a walk, I tried to get her out as much as possible to just try and get her away from yeah. all of what's going on in in the emergency department. As you can imagine, the emergency department in the Dublin hospital is not the nicest place to be. Yeah. So we've t- we've taken to walk in the, uh, the multi-story car park yeah. Yeah. just to get out from the craziness and then just you know have a chat and just as I say try and yeah. get away from it. But um, we w- came back in about half ten last night and they had. Uh, organised a, a special a staff member who will sit with Amy and Minder one to one so that gave me a bit of respite I was able to go home last night uh, left the hospital okay. at 11 go home at midnight and, and you, got, you got some rest yeah, some yeah rest. before you get back to it today Richard for what it's worth uh, I know from the texts uh, and calls that we've been getting over the last mm-hmm. couple of days a, a lot of people are hoping uh, that uh, there'll be some resolution uh, to this uh, and mm-hmm. their thoughts are with you, as I say, for what it's worth. Uh, we'd like to check back in with you again tomorrow if we can. Yeah. We hope that, that things improve. And thanks for talking yeah. to us again today, Richard. Thank, Thank you very much indeed. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.